Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today requires a longer than normal preamble. I'm speaking with Charles Murray, who is a political scientist, writer, and W.H. Brady scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Murray has been a controversial figure throughout his whole career, but especially since the publication of The Bell Curve in the 90s. The most controversial claim in that book was that the mean IQ gap between black and white Americans is partly genetic in origin, meaning it cannot be fully closed by changing the environment in which black kids grow up. As you'll hear in the podcast, I suspect Murray is wrong about this and that huge cognitive changes are possible in the long run for black America by means of environmental interventions. But I did not have Murray on to rehash the empirical claims he made in the bell curve. I had him on to discuss his new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. This book has a slightly different emphasis than the bell curve. In Facing Reality, Murray argues that we have to face two truths about race in America, or else the American experiment is doomed. These two truths, according to Murray, are that different races have different mean levels of cognitive ability, and that different races have different crime rates. Murray believes that the only way to fight back against the idea that America is a racist nation, and to fight against the proliferation of race-based public policy is to bring his empirical claims from the bell curve into the mainstream. Now, I strongly disagree with Murray about this, as you'll hear in the second half of the podcast. And I want to say a few things here at the outset. First and foremost, the reason I had Charles Murray on was not to argue about the source of the IQ gap between races. I'm not a psychometrician or a psychologist. I haven't spent years parsing the vast empirical literature on IQ. I've read enough to know that there are compelling critiques of Murray from specialists in his field, people like James Flynn, Richard Nisbet, and many others. And as you'll hear in our discussion, I suspect that Murray's writing leaves out the importance of culture in causing racial disparities. But my main reason for having Murray on was not to challenge the empirical claims he makes in his book. It was to challenge the normative claim he makes in his book. The claim that we must bring the topic of race and IQ into the mainstream conversation about race in America. I think this is wrong and dangerous. The social consequences of mainstreaming a discussion of race and IQ would be much greater than any benefits accrued by having yet another argument against race-based public policy. As I say to Murray in the podcast, Thomas Sowell has spent an entire career persuasively arguing against policies like affirmative action and against the lazy assumption that racial disparities can only be caused by racism. And he's done this without ever implying that black people are permanently less intelligent on average than whites. Indeed, he spent a lot of effort arguing against that claim. So clearly it's possible to push back against the encroachment of race-based policy 
critical race theory and Kendiism without resorting to the bell curve. And I think it's very important that we do. In the second half of the podcast, I ask Murray to actually consider the consequences of mainstreaming race and IQ for the already tense race relations in this country. What would that look like? Well, to me, it looks like talking heads on cable news saying things like, well, you know, systemic racism is not true because black people are always going to have lower IQ than whites. It can mean black children hearing these kinds of claims made and asking their parents what it means for them. It means white children hearing these claims in mainstream media and repeating them in school, as kids do. Actually picture it. A white kid hears on CNN or Fox or the radio that black people are less intelligent on average, and that this is partly genetic because the claim has been mainstreamed, and then repeats it to a black friend at school, who understandably gets angry and tells a teacher. So now not only do the black kid's parents have to reassure him that he can be as as intelligent as any white person, but also imagine the hell that would come down on the white kid who's simply repeating what he heard in the mainstream media. When you actually think through the consequences of mainstreaming this topic, it quickly becomes clear how much of a disaster it would be. And so the second half of this podcast is me trying to convince Murray of this. In the first half of the podcast, I mostly let him speak so that he can give a full picture of his argument. And I'm certain the fact that I let him speak so much will upset some people. But this is where I just have to stick to a rule that I have for my podcasts, which is that I'll never invite someone on my show and then treat them like an enemy to be dominated. You can watch cable news if you want that. Here, I'm always going to try to have actual conversations with people which means I'm going to have to give them the time and space to lay out their arguments. Another rule for my podcast is that I'm going to have very controversial people on here, people that are hated for their ideas. I had Peter Singer, who's been protested as a eugenicist for arguing that children with certain disabilities should be euthanized. I had Noam Chomsky, who's been accused by many of denying the Cambodian genocide. So as long as I think somebody isn't a troll or a truly evil person, I'm not going to rule out having them on my show. I know some people will accuse me of of giving Murray a platform, uh, which would only make sense if he weren't already a best-selling author and household name. The truth is, Charles Murray has had a platform since before I was born. Not only that, but his position on race and intelligence is shared by tens of millions of Americans if the polls I cite in this podcast are any indication. So I think this is very much a conversation worth having, and I hope you agree. So without further ado, Charles Murray. Okay, Charles Murray, thank you so much for coming on my show. My pleasure. So the topic of today's conversation is your new book, which comes out in about a week. It'll, it should be out by the time this, this podcast is released, called Facing Reality. And it's a controversial book. I imagine it's a book that will get a, a wide host of reactions, and we're here to talk about it as honestly as possible. And so thank you for coming on. So in the book, you talk about two truths about race in America that we have to face up to. What are these two truths, and why is it so important that we face up to them. 
Let me start with the last half of the question first. Why is it so important that we face up to them? Last summer, when there were the protests and the riots and the rest of it, I was dismayed by the discussion of problems with policing in Black communities and problems with having sufficient numbers of Black executives and so forth at high-level positions. And in the discussion of systemic racism, nobody was mentioning the two truths that factor in to these problems. And one is that the rates of violent crime in Black communities is much higher than in Asian or or white communities. And also there is uh, there are different means and distributions of cognitive ability among the races, whether you're talking about Asians or Blacks or Latinos or whites. And I use the word race in quotation marks there since particularly with Latinos, it's, it's not an appropriate word. But anyway, once you factor in those two realities, a lot of the problems that are ascribed to racism are appropriately explained by the the facts on the ground and people responding to those facts in ways that they have no choice but to respond to them. So two truths, differences in crime rates, differences in distributions of cognitive ability. So differences in crime rates are are something I've talked about often on the podcast. I, I just had Anthony Barksdale, who is the former acting commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department, to talk about the seemingly perennial problem of homicide and violent crime and and black kids getting caught in the crossfire and the fact that black men in their twenties are the only demographic in the country whose number one cause of death is homicide. This is a huge stop the bleeding problem, which I care about very much. And the notion that we have to talk about it, frankly, is, is something that I very much agree with. However, when it comes to group differences in cognitive ability, I'm not convinced at all that it's, it's worth talking about. And we'll get to that. And, and I want to give you a chance first to lay out the empirical evidence for your position and how you know what you know, and then give you a chance to respond to the criticisms from other people in your field and so forth before we actually get to the conversation about whether all of this is really worth talking about. Cause I want people to first have a sense of, of what the claims made in the book are. And um, so to that end, can you summarize what the group average differences in cognitive ability are and give people who don't really have the specifics on the claims you're making a sense of what claims you are in fact making and and what the evidence for them is. Okay. I mean, when we talk about cognitive ability, intelligence, and so forth, we're talking about one of the most inflammatory, controversial topics, even when race is not involved. I mean, just the concept of IQ. So a couple of things to sort of clear away some of the debris that gets in the way of the conversation. IQ is not human virtue or wisdom or common sense. It is a certain mental agility. And agility is probably a good way of thinking of it, whereby some people can take disparate bits of information, put them together, figure them out quicker than other people. And the what we call IQ tests, but also almost any test that involves mental ability, has this value. It has predictive validity. 
if the test scores did not predict anything with a useful amount of accuracy, uh, the test would have gone out of existence decades ago. But it is a statement of fact that if you give six-year-old kids, forget about race, give any set of six-year-old kids a good IQ test, that has a lot that it says about how those children will do with unemployment, with income, with educational attainment, and the rest of it at six years old. Now, the, the predictive validity of the test gets higher as people get older. But that's what I want people who are watching this to take on board. Suppose that you have a set of test scores. You can complain all you want to about whether these are really measuring intelligence. Okay. What you cannot argue with, and this is the empirical reality that people just have to deal with, is you give me those test scores. I'm not going to try to defend their construct validity in some theoretical sense. I'm just going to say, if I'm an employer hiring people, I can use those test scores to make reasonably good guesses, reasonably good, about how those employees will perform. I can use those test scores if I am running a university to have a pretty good prediction of how students will do uh, in the classroom. Important caveat. By the way, Coleman, I'm going to have to take a few minutes with this because uh, for exactly the reason you said, a whole bunch of people are out there saying, doesn't he know this is all pseudoscience and it's all been debunked and all this? Uh, by predictive validity, I don't mean that I can take a look at a person and know their IQ score and make a really accurate prediction for that individual, okay? But if I am hiring 100 employees and I hire uh, employees at varying levels of cognitive ability, statistically over that whole group, there will be a relationship with their job productivity. So it's, it's a statistical relationship. That, that leads to the do, two things you have to hold in your head at the same time that people have a hard time doing. And one is that overlapping distributions are part of differences in means. By distributions, think of the bell curve, the name of the book. Uh, the bell curve, the famous bell-shaped curve. Okay, the mean is in the middle, but that, that leaves a whole lot of people within any group who are at all points on that curve. Or to put it another way, if blacks and whites have different mean cognitive ability, that still means that millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. If Asians have higher cognitive ability at the mean than whites, that still means that millions of whites are, are smarter than millions of Asians. So you've got these overlapping distributions. The meaning of the difference is not about individuals. It's about social consequences. Well, let, let's take employment as an example. If you have thousands of people who are employed in different occupations, and they have different mean IQs, those groups will have different mean productivity, mean different job performance, uh, even though you don't know that much about any given individual. That has huge, huge social consequences. And again, it doesn't require that you believe that an IQ test, or for that matter, a test of reading and writing, captures anything very abstract. It just means that you accept the predictive validity those scores have. I guess I'll stop there. Yeah. So this is one of those conversations where I feel any order in which I have the conversation, you know, is going to be the wrong order to some people. But the way I'm deciding to do it is just, let's just talk about 
the empirics first before we talk about what I think are the larger issues around whether this discussion should be exported to the mainstream culture, you know, which, which when we get there, it'll be clear. I don't think it should, but before we do that, you know, this is an area in which I'm not a specialist. You know, I've, I've no more of an opinion really about the deepest controversies about IQ and the extent to which it's inherited or, or culturally and environmentally determined, then I have a deep opinion about whether the minimum wage, you know, raising it a dollar causes unemployment. This is something people get PhDs about. And, you know, it, it would be dishonest of me to pretend that I have a, a strong, confident conclusion on the pure empirical end of it. But I know, you know, I've read just enough to know the kinds of critiques that seem compelling to me. And, and so, you know, one of those critiques is many of your critics from within the field wouldn't at all argue that there is an IQ gap between blacks, whites, Hispanics, and Asians, and so forth. Like the, the real source of the controversy is why those IQ gaps are there. And then the, the, related question of whether they can be closed that that's really the center of the bullseye of the controversy around all of these issues which i you know know from reading critiques of of your work from within the field from people like uh James Flynn who um who died i think died died recently and um and and many others so this is really because this is the center of the bullseye of what we're talking about, um, I want you to really spell out what you think is true here based on your research. Like what percentage of these gaps in IQ, A, A, what are the gaps and what percentage of these gaps do you think are closable by means of public policy? First, the size. Got to use a little bit of jargon here, but not much. The, the size of the black-white IQ gap has usually been said it's at one standard deviation, to use the statistical term. In IQ points, that's 15 IQ points. In fact, there was a major reduction in the gap, I think it's quite clear, for people born from in the early part of the 20th century through people born in the mid-1970s. And so in the book, the inventory of test scores I use, I say that you have at least right now about 0.85 standard deviations, uh, 12, 13, 14 IQ points as the current gap. And I say I use what I consider to be a, a conservative estimate. A lot of actually I'll get criticism from psychometricians for having underestimated the current size of the gap. But I thought it was better to be guilty of underestimating it than overestimating. So that's sort of the size. In terms of the the history, you're looking at this reduction that occurred 30, 40 years ago. And then you look at a very flat set of test results since then. Basically, for tests administered to people born since about 1973, uh, the black-white difference has been virtually unchanging with a lot of tests giving that result. Now, at this point, I want to say, I want to distinguish 
between what you call the center of the bullseye, which is why does it occur and what can be done? And so, you know, this book actually is about what is. And the reason I want to focus on what is, whether it's policing or whether it's uh, cognitive ability, is suppose that we had a method for getting rid of the IQ gap, which in 10 years would have get, get rid of it. Just suppose we did. That would not increase the number of people who have a good shot of becoming upper management at Exxon today, this year. And so when we look at whatever the differences are in employment, whatever, whenever we look at the differences of what are in violent crime, what is going on right now explains a lot of what's happening right now in terms of facts on the ground. I understand that people really obsess, and I'm not using that word hyperbolically, they obsess about how much is environmental and how much is genetic. And I think that's a mistake. And I'll tell you why I think it's a mistake. First, it doesn't make any difference operationally. We, know, we do know this. We know that the environment that we know how to change does not account for a lot of the difference. By the environment I, we know how to change, I mean quality of schooling, uh, parenting methods, socioeconomic status, the family. All of those things are what uh, psychologists call part of the shared environment. And that phrase comes from studies of twins raised together in the same home. You can also do it with siblings. But there are ways by comparing identical twins and fraternal twins where you have different proportions of genes the two share for you to partition out how much is genetic, how much is from the shared environment, parenting style, socioeconomic status, and so forth. But what happens when you do those analyses is that you have a lot left over that is an environmental effect, but it's what's called the non-shared environment. Examples of the non-shared environment would be different events in the womb, you know, exposure to different hormone levels and so forth. Non-shared environment is the kids go to the same school, but one kid gets a spectacularly good teacher and the other kid doesn't or that kind of thing. And by non-shared environment, two things. It is environmental. It does have effects. We don't know how to manipulate it. And so, so is it, but is that true in every case? Because I'm thinking of something like lead poisoning and, and the effect of lead poisoning on children in the, in the 60s and 70s. That would be prenatal, right? Or, or it could that's be prenatal, but that's, that is also shared environment. Uh, mm. So, you know, lead poisoning, you have a really good empirical record that has. So, so do we know why IQ scores narrowed so much during the 70s and 80s between black and white Americans? And, and why can't that be sort of studied and replicated? Okay, what do we know? One thing we know for sure is that the environment in which black kids grew up got a lot better over the course of the 20th century. So in the 1940s, in the Deep South, particularly in the rural areas, the education of black kids was just pathetic. And by the 1960s, 1970s, a lot more money was being poured into education in general. We also know that uh, a lot more black kids were going to school in northern urban areas in the 1960s and 70s than had been going to those schools in the 1920s, 1930s. So you can take that, you can change this, take changes to socioeconomic status, which were going up for the black population. You can take reductions in lead contamination, improved nutrition. You have lots of reasons to think 
that environmental changes were going on with a group which had been extraordinarily deprived, and those would plausibly account for the big drop. At the same time, um, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't have predicted it because I associate the 70s and 80s with you know, the largest crime wave in, in a, probably in recent American history concentrated in you know, black inner city urban neighborhoods and, and so forth. That's, that's the second. Okay, when you want explanations of why did things stop apparently for kids born after the early to mid-1970s, well, you had exactly that. You had, in many ways, the environment for black kids was getting worse. The marriage rates were dropping. The non-marital births were rising rapidly. Crime had risen rapidly. Uh, you had a very different attitude toward education in the 1970s, uh, it could be argued, and a deleterious effect. There were all sorts of things that in the 1970s were were having negative effects. And the environmental explanation would say the environmental improvements uh, had pretty much gone as far as they could with things like getting rid of the the lead and uh, improving nutrition. But you had the remaining environmental influences got worse. There is the alternative explanation, which is to say, and I'm presenting this because I don't have evidence for it, just as I don't have evidence that increased crime caused the end to test scores. The alternative hypothesis is you have a genetic component to the black-white difference, you have an environmental component, and the big improvement in the environment had pretty much occurred by the end of the 1960s, the early 1970s. And what we are looking at subsequently is the remaining genetic component, which is intractable. Now, having said that, having put both of those on the table, I'm saying to you, that the issues in this book, for the issues in this book, it doesn't make any difference. What I'm saying, in effect, is remember after the riots last summer and you had all of the senior management and famous corporations, Microsoft and Apple and lots of corporations like that, saying by in five years we will have X percent of our upper middle management who are people of color. Okay. By the way, I apologize for that thing that's going on. I wish that I could stop it, but I'm not sure that I can. Okay, they can promise that, but it's, it's not going to be possible because the hiring that goes on has to deal with the situation that exists now. And the, the same issues can be brought up with regard to crime. The, the other part of this, though, is that the extent to which the gap is genetic versus environmental creates a principled difference in whether it could close yes. in the future, which people care about and are right to care about. So, you know, they're, I think the reason it matters to people so much is because the, the, in principle, if, if one thing is true, then we just have to live with, we either have to jerry-rig racial results and get rid of meritocracy completely, or... We just have to live with unequal results between races until the end of time and the second order consequences of racial inequality. And that hinges on to what extent the gap is, is genetic versus an environmental, right? Right. And so let's go back to the empirics. The, the leveling off of the test score differences started as about 30 years ago. 
Yeah, about 30 or more. All right, so we now have had 30 years of no further narrowing in the difference, 30 years during which expenditures on education devoted to people of color and low-income kids, especially low-income kids who are people of color, have increased drastically. It happened during a period after the No Child Left Behind program in the early 2000s, put a huge emphasis on test scores, and schools all around the country were intensively trying to to raise the test scores, specifically of Black kids and Latino kids. I had kids in school at that time, and I can tell you the convulsions the schools went through to push those kids into the proficiency category, because otherwise they were subject to penalties, were Huge, all right. So if you say, well, it's environmental, and so therefore we can reduce the gap, I come back to you and I say, Coleman, look, tell me what we're going to do that we haven't been doing for the last 30 years that has had no effect whatsoever that we can measure. And, you know, the bright ideas that are out there that haven't been tried are virtually zilch. The number of innovations, experimental programs. Remember Kansas City? It was, I guess, a couple of decades ago, a federal judge sort of mandated, not sort of mandated, did mandate that Kansas City had to make huge strides in equalizing outcomes. And they spent something like, well, I don't want to say it because I might be wrong. We're talking a couple of billion dollars on a, on a small number of high schools. It was carefully assessed. Zero effect. And that's the challenge I think the people have to deal with if they say it's okay if we just try harder. So let me, let me say something here. There is much more to environment than public policy. I, I think, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with this. The fact that most public policy solutions overpromise and underdeliver is not tantamount to saying that the some total of environment is not the main cause of this, right? Those are logically distinct propositions and, and important ones to distinguish. And just give, give me a moment to, to get through this. What I'm talking about here is the power, the immense power of culture, right? Culture must have cognitive implications. That's what it's there for. And it's, it's the reason human babies are born so helpless relative to chimpanzees. And we're born with our brains undercooked so that they can be cooked for 20 years by the subculture we, we we're born into. And I'm reminded of, I, I had the evolutionary biologist, Joseph Henrik from Harvard on my podcasts very recently. And he pointed out that if you took two populations that were genetically identical and you simply endowed one with a culture of high literacy, where the other one just never started reading, then the literate culture would have measurably different brains. They would have thicker corpus callosums, which connect the two hemispheres. They would have you know, altered parts of their prefrontal cortex that you could see on an fMRI. And, and all of this without any genetic difference. And this is all because one population does this weird thing of looking at symbols and training the mind to associate those symbols with objects and concepts, and then, and then forcing their kids to drill this and do it against their will. All of these sort of unnatural and cultural things. 
And the point here is that culture, you know, not, not necessarily public policy per se, culture uh, broadly conceived literally changes your brain. And I, I know that's a Ted talk cliche, but I really mean that in the non-trivial sense. It's like, and moreover, you know, two populations can live side by side, but maintain totally separate cultures. And then, you know, the fact that black people and white people still speak English differently, you know, um, practically different dialects in, 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 at the average, different words, different accents um, in many cases is a signal uh, and tracks a wider set of cultural differences that make up, in my view, the most important elements of, of the environment in which people's brains develop. And I, I, this is a point that I don't see considered in your book. And I want to ask you now, you know, what do you make of the power of cultural differences to cause these cognitive differences, not just public policy? It's big. I agree with you that it's big. Well, let me get, give the most obvious example, the one that I think has a huge effect, and that is cultural. In a lot of Black communities, of in Black schools, of razzing kids who study hard, they are acting white. And it's made socially very unpleasant for them. They have all sorts of incentives not to act white and not to stand out. That is a cultural difference that nobody argues about whether it exists or not. Teachers, school administrators, sociologists, everybody who looks at at the culture of black schools says this is an issue. Now, if that could change, if you had magically the Asian tiger mom mentality, where it's constant pressure to perform academically, do I think that would make a difference? Yeah, I do. Do I have the slightest idea as to how to change that culture? No, I don't. I'll ask you, how would you go about changing that aspect of culture? Mental health is a journey. That's why it's important to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day. When you work on yourself, it brings positive changes in all areas of your life. The long-term effects of therapy can give you the tools to deal with challenges as they arise, strengthen your relationships, and give you a more positive outlook on life. There's no better time to invest in yourself than right now. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code Coleman to get $100 off your first month. That's Coleman and Talkspace.com. Well, it's a very difficult thing, but it seems that the takeaway from your book is that we simply have to live with these. At least that's what it seems to me. And I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying, but it seems to me there is so much uncertainty and so much complexity as to what are the drivers of cognitive differences between groups. And in fact, I do take your point that we don't know how to change these things. 
but shouldn't we tether ourselves to a notion that we should keep trying to figure out? And that that's something I feel strongly, but I don't get from your book, right? Like you get to the end of the book and I don't feel that, that we should keep trying to figure out. I feel essentially we throw our hands up, we face reality, we talk about the cognitive differences and sort of allegedly immutable aspect of at least some of it. You know, it, it doesn't seem to set us on the right path in terms of continually, you know, to, to the, the bottom line, I think for me is that we know we haven't optimized the environment for poor kids, poor white kids for that matter, certainly poor black kids. And shouldn't the emphasis be on continuing to find creative ways at the local level, even if it's not a matter of federal policy, because you know federal policy is not everything. Shouldn't the emphasis be on finding creative solutions to cognitively enrich the environment rather than throwing our hands up? Well, to answer your question, why is it that I started writing about race differences and cognitive ability again when I was notorious for writing about them in 1994 in the bell curve with Dick Ernstein. And subsequently, I wrote an article, I think, in the early 2000s discussing what had been learned since the bell curve came out. But other than that, I have stayed away from this topic. Why in 2020 did I say I've got to take it up again? And the answer is very simple. because. The New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, go through the list. We're all jumping on the bandwagon of its systemic racism. And in the book, I say, I think I say it in the note to the reader, that I hope focusing on what is, as opposed to what causes it and what we can hope for, will be clarifying. Because if you're going to make the charge of systemic racism, that's a way different thing from saying racism is still a factor in American life. That's an indictment of of America that is much deeper. And I'm saying it's actually not systemic racism, that a great deal of what we are looking at is the result of what is, regardless of why it is. So there are two different things. One book can only do so much. And I have written about the effectiveness of preschool interventions and things like that. So I'm interested in that topic. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be too glib here, though. I'm not saying, oh, well, this book is about what is, and therefore I'm not, going to, I'm not going to deal with the question of how we can solve it. Let me say, I don't say this in the book, but I can tell you what I believe. I don't think you have a persisting problem that doesn't change in size for 35 or 40 years without saying this is really intractable. And you can say it's intractable because we don't know how to change certain cultural things. You can say it's intractable because of genes. But one thing I'm really sure of is we know that it is intractable. And so you say, well, Murray just says we're going to be looking at this for foreseeable future. And my opinion is that you you can take the, the intractability of it could yield either one of two attitudes of, you know, that that's all the more reason to try much harder than we have been, you know, the intractability of it. I, I mean, I could see. But try harder. How? What, what should we do? 
Well, well, I mean, listen, we're faced with a lot of problems in the world that have not yet been solved, right? Or, you know, the, the orientation, take, take something like violent crime in general, right? It's like you can, the general attitude you should have towards it is towards peace, right? To have in your mind the goal of total peace as, as an ethical guidepost and a motivational guidepost to motivate one psychology on this issue. And even if, even if you never reach the goal, it's at least you're not passive in the face of it. Right. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to get at here. You know, the truth is, and I think we should, we should probably pivot to, to the discussion, to, to my concerns about even having this conversation, for instance. And I want to just highlight, it has nothing to do with any belief that you are a racist, right? I think I hear that charge leveled at you. I think that is ad hominem irrelevant and I don't see the evidence for it, okay? I can imagine, as a black person, I can imagine having a beer with you as friends. That's the truth. And I know some people are gonna hate me for saying that. But here's what I can't imagine. This is what I can't imagine. And I think it, it gets to something that, that you, you write in the book about living out this American creed of treating people as, as individuals. Let's say that tomorrow the American Psychological Association, the powers that be in psychology weigh in on this and completely agree with your position empirically. And, and Jim Flynn, if he were alive, and, and Nisbet and all of your other critics in the field were persuaded on the base of, basis of, of evidence so that there's just now an empirical consensus in the field. Charles Murray's been vindicated. And, and we face reality in the sense that you talk about in the book, like, and by that, let's like cash out what that means. Face reality. It means we're talking about the black, white, Hispanic, Asian IQ gap in mainstream media. It means when someone on cable news says this is systemic racism, the other talking head feels comfortable saying, but the black, white IQ gap. And that becomes the memeified, you know, version of the conversation. That's what facing reality, at least that's what I understand it to mean. It's like, this is something we, we, that is mainstreamed um, in the culture. I'm thinking about the social consequences of that for race relations in this country. And it seems to me to be absolutely poisonous, regardless of what is or isn't true about the empirics of it. You know, I am, I, I, I some people are going to view this as melodrama, but I think, I think this is a serious challenge that, that you have to contend with is like, I remember one time when I was a kid, for instance, some, some, you know, idiot kid came up to me when we were playing basketball and said, do you know, black people have an extra bone in their foot to, so they, they can jump higher. And I wasn't wounded by this or whatever. This kid was just being an asshole like kids are. And I probably said 10,000 things like that was like that to other kids. This is, you know, but I, I'm picturing a situation where this conversation is mainstreamed and you know, a kid says, a white kid says to a black kid at school, repeating what he heard on TV or his parents say, and, and, and they said, you know, black kids, black people have 14 lower IQ points. And, I, and now I'm picturing the black kid going home to his parents and saying, listen what, to what this kid told me at school. And what, what is a parent supposed to say to that, right? Like if this gets mainstreamed, not only what is the parent supposed to say to his child, who's probably incapable of understanding the subtleties of overlapping bell curves and and, and so forth. And, and truly understanding that that fact may not have implications for them and their self-esteem. 
Also, the second and third order consequences of the white kid who's just repeating what he heard on TV and the way people would come down on him. And I'm picturing this situation, and it seems to me to be an absolute disaster for the social fabric. And I feel I would resent living in a culture that forced me, you know, if I had children, to have that conversation with him. And, and it, it seems like I, I truly, really worry about it. And this has nothing to do with the empirics, which I have, I've said I'm, I'm not qualified truly to weigh in on. And my profound discomfort with this has nothing to do with your character or, or, or anything like that. I just, I, I truly worry for the social fabric of the country if this, if we face reality in the sense that, that you are uh, describing. Okay, let me spin out the scenario for saying we face disaster if we don't. The way what you're talking about, when we just kind of ignore the empirics and get on with life, is not a bad description of what was true in the 1990s and the 2000s. Uh, when you had a lot of the same problems and they were not secrets in terms of the differences in scores and so forth. But you also had, and I don't want to be Pollyannish about this, but, but think back, it's not just to be elected Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, the most admired woman in America was Oprah Winfrey. You had a, a large variety of black faces in all sorts of public intellectual positions, in academia and so forth, who were not, did not just have a platform. They were respected for how well they did their jobs. And in, in some ways, that's one of the reasons I didn't talk right about this stuff during that period, because what good would it do? And all the harms it could do were quite obvious to me. Once you start saying, as has been the woke and the critical race theory and the rest the last couple of years, which I just treated initially as, you know, it's academics indulging in recreational radicalism. I never thought it would escape the campus. It's now dominating in the newsrooms of the mainstream media. And it's systemic racism and everybody's saying that, I'll tell you, poison leaking into the system is when you have 13% of the population, which is the black population, saying to 60% of the population, which is non-Latino, white, you are evil, you are bad, you've got white privilege, it's your fault, it's all your fault, we need reparations, we need the state to systemically increase the advantages that it gives to blacks and other people of color because this country is so deeply evil and, and systemically racist. All right. Coleman, the reaction in terms of the elites could not be better from the point of view of the critical race theorists. I mean, you have, white guilt is a real thing. And you had among white elites, mea culpa, mea culpa. That's not the reaction among a lot of middle class and working class whites who have seen themselves the last 20, 30 years as having been respectful and friendly with their black colleagues at work, who don't consider themselves to be racist, who cannot see what possible white privilege they've ever had, and what the mainstream media cannot bring itself to report on accurately is how many of these whites who formerly were trying their best to follow the American creed of treating people as individuals, 
what proportion of those are saying, oh, give me a break. I have had it. Quit telling me this stuff about all, how, how bad whites have been. If you get that kind of blowback from a large chunk of the population, it's going to take the form of identity politics in which whites start to play identity politics. And if that happens, it's going to be a disaster. Every, everything you said, going back. everything you said in the last two minutes, I agree with. Okay. I think left-wing black identity politics is a disaster. Um, I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about it. I testified before Congress against reparations. Here's what I don't, I don't see. How does throwing into the mix, into the mainstream conversation that black people are perhaps intractably, durably, on average, less intelligent than whites going to interact with the already poisonous race relations we have in this country? I think that there are ways to fight the top-down Ibram Kendi enforcement of unrealistically unequal outcomes without talking about something that gets such at the core of people's identity. I mean, I I think Thomas Sowell has done an amazing job of this. His whole career, he's probably written thousands of pages arguing against any kind of top-down policies that, that seek to enforce equal outcomes by group without ever implying that black people on average are less intelligent than white people. I think it's possible and I think it's essential because if the choice is between Kendi-style racially rigged society on the one hand, which, as you rightly note, accuses white people constantly of stuff that they, they had nothing to do with, if the choice is between that and between a sort of mainstreamed conversation about race and IQ, I think we are doomed in this country because it just, it, it's not, it's not something that you, I think you, you, you say in the beginning of the book that in a reasonable world, like, you know, just saying these facts that, that you sort of talked about in the first 30 minutes or so wouldn't be controversial. It was like, yes, but we don't live in a reasonable world. We, you know, it, we, sure don't. We, and we, if we lived in a reasonable world, we wouldn't have to have a military. We wouldn't have to have all kinds of things. And we would, in fact, probably have a whole different set of moral obligations to people if we lived in a perfectly reasonable world. And I, I really fear that this stuff becoming mainstreamed is absolutely the wrong reaction to the valid grievances that, that you were talking about. I want to say one more thing here. We're living right now in, in an increasing era of racial preferences for minorities, right? I've talked about this. The mayor of Oakland recently decided to only give checks to poor black people and not poor white people in the city. I think that is every bit as much an insult to my, my sense of what it is to be an American as I, th- I, I assume it is to yours, Charles. What I have to say is that there's more to this living by the American creed of treating people as individuals than, than just having a legal regime of colorblindness. As important, perhaps more important, is that we promote social and, and psychological colorblindness, that we don't add flames to the fire of, of tribalism. And I, I really worry that this is a unintended consequence of, of talking about race and IQ. And there are some reasons I think. I, I read, I, I saw a general social survey result that really, really dismayed me. And, and you're right 
to talk about Oprah Winfrey and Barack Obama, I think those things, those achievements represent huge progress that is unpopular to acknowledge. Um, however, at the same time, I read this from the general social survey, uh, which is, I think, a, a very trusted polling organization. This is from 2016, so, so slightly out of date, but probably still pretty close. This says 26%, one in four, of white Republicans and 18%, almost one in five, of white Democrats rated blacks as less intelligent than whites four years ago, five years ago. It's the same percentage of white, white Republicans, 26, and a slightly lower percent, 12% of white Democrats said they object to a relative marrying a black person. Now, those numbers are you know, higher than I, I would have predicted if you had asked me the, the moment before I read that. You know, the notion that one in four white Republicans and something like one in nine white Democrats would object to a black person marrying, you know, their daughter. What bothers me the most about that is that those numbers are the same. I mean, are are the same for Republicans and close to the same for Democrats, which means in practice on the ground, people who are far less educated than you are, far less nuanced on these issues, haven't been carefully carving conceptual distinctions because they're just average people. They really do link the two things. They, they, they link the belief that black people are on average less intelligent to the belief that, to the, to the truly racist beliefs that um, I don't want my relatives marrying a black person. And, and this is to me something you, you really have to grapple with you know, the, the, un, the, the particular kind of tribal unreason in this world might be a kind of fire that you're unintentionally lighting a match on. I think that the country is in flames already. I think we are headed toward the end of the American project in any meaningful form. That when people talk about the 1850s all over again, a concept I laughed at, a few years ago, it is no longer laughable. It's still not probable, but it's not laughable. And the, the, the thing that, that people like you, Coleman, have to come to grips with is, okay, so I want to make the argument that America is not systemically racist. I want to make the argument that actually America has done a pretty damn good job of uh, given the the difficulties that multiracial societies have around the world, damn good job of of dealing with this. And we're about to throw all that away because it's partly Latinos, but it's mainly Blacks, have decided that identity politics is as time has come. And so we are looking at not 50 years from now, but we are looking over the next couple of election cycles at the possibility of kind of irreparable abandonment of the ideal of the American creed, where you treat people as individuals, regardless of race, color, and creed, and so forth. So I think that we are in a crisis, and the question I ask of you, okay, Coleman, how do I demonstrate that this is not a systemically racist country? How do I explain that you have so many fewer black physicians than the percentage of the population would warrant and black engineers. And so what I'm trying to say is I have this problem, Coleman, of defending the proposition that this is not a systemically racist country unless I am willing to talk about these two realities involving crime 
and involving employment and education. Because otherwise, the statement is, what else can it be? It's been going on all this time. It's been going on for all these decades. We have not been making much progress by all sorts of measures in the last 20, 30 years. It has to be racism. Do you have an alternative to saying, damn it? Yes, the police are going to behave differently in a community where the violent crime rate is way higher than it is in the neighborhood across town. Yes, people will have difficulty getting trained as physicians or as nuclear physicists or so forth in the same proportions uh, as another group if you have differences in cognitive ability. Absent those kinds of coming to grips with that reality, the charge of systemic racism is going to persist. Now, I can't emphasize this too strongly. It has to be conjoined with the moral obligation to judge people as individuals. And here is, you know, we both have an ample number of things that we can say to each other about this is real and this is harmful. The reality of aggressive affirmative action, which nobody wants to say is, but everybody kind of knows. Whites widely consider that anytime there is a new black face in the office, that's the affirmative action hire. That's the default assumption. And once they prove that they are really good at their job, nobody is more ecstatic at finding that out than white colleagues are. Whites don't like the idea of their just instinctive reaction is this person's an affirmative action hire. But that's there because the policy reality out there is that means a lot of people are in their positions only because of the color of their skin. That's poisonous. That's poisonous at a level. Well, here's, here's the contrast I draw in the book. The white elites look around at their situations and they say, hey, my black colleagues at work are really very good and they're just as smart as the whites are and my black neighbors are as helpful and cooperative and good company and honest as anybody else. Okay, that's the reality of their situation because guess what? Elite neighborhoods, first place, have very small minority populations. And secondly, the members who of the minorities who are in those neighborhoods are there because they can afford to be there. And if they can afford to be there, they, they're part of the same culture. What about the black cop in Queens who's raising his, embracing his family in a mixed race neighborhood in Queens? where the reality of his experience is that most of the kids at the bottom of the class in uh, his child's school are black, and uh, the reality is that most of the crime around uh, his home is, is black, and so forth and so on. That's the reality of his life. He's the person who has to understand you do not have the option of judging people as groups. You have to confront each individual as you find them. Because unless you do that, uh, you are genuinely being racist. So I am saying we've got to talk about these realities. We've also got to passionately affirm the American ideal of treating people as individuals, which we are in danger of losing forever. So in a way, you know, I have no good answer to the downsides of what I'm trying to do. Uh, there are a number of people whom I respect. Uh, that have already said this very strongly to me, including members of my own family. 
And I finally decided I had to write this book because I think we've got catastrophe coming at us down the road where this country just ceases to be America. And if I'm wrong about that, and we would have pulled out of this anyway, then, then I'm really sorry for the damage I may have caused. But insofar as I think that unless we come to grips with the twin imperatives of treating the world as it is and also treating people as individuals, don't know how to end that sentence, we're going to go down the tubes. So I guess the, the fair statement is I have decided that uh, it's one of those situations where you have to do whatever seems to give you the best chance of rallying some kind of reaction to the current dominant public intellectual dialogue, which is sympathetic to critical race theory and systemic racism. Okay, this is... Um, so I think our disagreement is on the relative cost-benefit analysis of bringing discussions of mean IQ in particular into the equation. I think that is really the deepest part of our disagreement here because I I share your concerns about the 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 destruction of even the goal of legal colorblindness, the resentment of white people and Asians that feel that and rightly in many cases that they're being passed over, that elites and politicians are taking their cues from social justice activists at Ivy League schools and so forth. I mean, it's, it's possible to overstate this, but it, I mean, the, the evidence of, of the, these kinds of policies proliferating is, you know, in general, it, you would have to be delusional to not see that it's happening. What, what I worry is, you know, and want to ask you is what is this, this catastrophe that you see coming? Well, I I mean, uh, sorry, the the question is the catastrophe you see coming. It's, it's very difficult for me to imagine a worse catastrophe than kids and parents uh, grappling with innate differences in intelligence between groups, which will inevitably happen at a lower level of sophistication than you are able to do in in book length prose format um, because of the way humans are and the the paranoia that uh, let me give you a thought experiment imagine that there were an iq gap between white republicans and white democrats let's say white democrats had 10 points higher iq on average or something like that and and there was debates about to what extent this was genetic and, and, and durable and to what extent it was environmental. And let's say researchers had a perfectly coherent sounding explanation for why we've got to face up to this and talk about this as a society. You know, something along, along the lines of we've got disparities in college professors by political orientation, and we need to know whether those are a consequence of bias, political bias at the universities, or whether they're driven by you know, cognitive differences in at the right tail of the distribution on intelligence. You know, obviously people who become professors are going to be drawn from that end. And let's say the New York Times releases a big summary of the research and they, they, they do all the careful caveats about not judging people 
by their group average, but judging them as individuals. And then say you're the, you're like average Tucker Carlson watcher. You're not a nut job. You're not crazy. You're, you know, run of the mill, conservative, white Republican who watches Tucker and and so forth. How much are you going to trust? I guess it's two questions. One, how are you, how, how much are you going to trust that what the New York times isn't really doing is just giving you the finger. And then secondly, is it wise from the point of view of the maintenance of our social fabric to say that we must face reality? We must mainstream this conversation. And, and is the disaster that you foresee really worse than the disaster that would ensue with doing that between races in a, in a country with, with an enormously and already extremely tense race relations? I'm not sure I got the question mark at the end of that. Okay, so could you just uh, sure, sure. like that? Let me just ask you the first question. Mm-hmm. What do you make of, in my hypothetical, the guy, the white Republican? Imagine that he feels that he's being given the finger and told he's stupid, which seems plausible to me. What do you make of his feelings? Are are his feelings to be dismissed as unimportant and irrational? And you, what you have to do is just realize what an overlapping bell curve is? The thing is that you can't tell whether somebody is a Republican or Democrat by looking at them. And so let's say, let's just stipulate that there is this 10-point difference or whatever you want to say. There is also a 10-point difference between white Baptists and uh, white uh, Jews, you know, but they look pretty much the same. And it's not a source of great tension among very many people that I know. The fact that you have easily visually identifiable uh, differences, that creates a problem that doesn't exist because the normal variation in IQ is such that siblings are separated by 7, 10, 12 IQ points routinely, routinely. The differences become socially important in the ways that you are worried about because they're so visually identifiable. There's also, by the way, a, a you know, reasonably large difference between Latinos and uh, whites, non-Latino whites, which also doesn't get have nearly as much valence because an awful lot of Latinos are indistinguishable from non-Latinos. If I remember, you know, part of the point of your book coming apart, which I, which I really enjoyed, was, you know, that there are these cultural markers that are obviously not as visible as skin color, but that to some extent give you a signal about who is Republican, who's Democrat, who's from where in the country. I mean, the thought experiment could be about state IQs. You know, there there are some IQs that have a mean, uh, some states that have a mean IQ that's five or eight or, you know, something like that points higher than other states. I guess the, 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 the thing I'm trying to use a, a thought experiment just to push the intuition that it's difficult and you know perhaps impossible to ask when when you have two people that have deep tribal hatreds of each other to mainstream a conversation about something as visceral as as one being uh, more intelligent than the other and the source of that having some significant part of it in nature itself right like that is that seems like putting a match on a fire. And I, I really worry that that is 
a bigger disaster than the one you foresee from the the legal regime of race preferences? You know, there are so many different responses I want to make. For example, here's another thought experiment that I thought of when Dick Ernstein and I were writing The Bell Curve, and I think I even mentioned it in the book. The thought experiment goes like this, has nothing to do with race. What I wanted to ask to people was, think of somebody who you think probably has an IQ a lot lower than yours. Do you feel kind of sorry for that person, condescending? You feel a little bit superior? Okay. And my thought was that a lot of people will kind of sheepishly admit that they do tend to feel kind of condescending and, and feel sorry for that person. But the other half of the thought experiment is now think of somebody that's a lot smarter than you are, maybe 20 points higher IQ. Do you feel inferior to that person? And I thought that that would wake people up and they'd say, well, no. I mean, I know people 20 points higher than me, uh, and I don't feel inferior to them. They can do certain things I can't do intellectually. Okay. So the question is this, what makes you think that the IQ you have right now is such that it's okay and reasonable for you to feel condescending toward people who aren't as smart as you, but you don't feel inferior to people who are smarter than you? Here's where the thought experiment backfired. Among academics, they really do feel inferior a lot of times to people who are a lot smarter than they are because IQ is really the coin of the realm. I want to tell you, I live in a part of the country where we have a very broad range of IQ among the whites who live in this, because I live in, a, in an area where it's not a gated suburb, it's a whole range of people. And so in our town, probably I am thought of as this kind of oddball guy who writes books. And I suppose if you ask people do I have a higher IQ than they do? They'd probably say, well, yeah, he probably does. Do they feel inferior to me? No, they don't. Now, I've taken race out of the equation here. But I'm saying that IQ as such is not nearly as much of a marker of, uh, that, that people worry about once you move outside academia as it is in the elite circles. That's where IQ is really the coin of the realm. So I'm saying to myself, it's not that big a deal when you're judging another human being as to whether you are have a higher score in a mental test than the other person does. That doesn't tell you much of anything about whether that is a person you will cherish or like or find humorous or want to marry. And if that is really true, if that is really true, as I believe it is, it shouldn't be that big a deal even across races. But well, and here, see, we each see a poison leaking into the system, and, and the poison that you see is bringing up these issues in mainstreaming the conversation about these differences, and the poison I see leaking into the system is decades of betraying the American ideal that the government is supposed to be impartial, uh, that it's supposed to treat all American citizens the same, and the betrayal of that ideal has, has had a lot of half, long half-life, okay, in terms of the reaction, because the devotion to that ideal among whites has been really, really high historically. I mean, so, I mean, the, the obvious response to that is, you know, the devotion among whites to that ideal is some 60 years old, right? What, what black people 
many black people are going to feel in response to that is not, you know, we've only gotten half a century or a little over half a century of a, a true effort at legal equality, which came on the back of a couple hundred years of, of not even you know, almost no attempt at that and, and quite, quite the opposite. So not only have we not had that for very long, on top of that, the outside of the legal framework, the social fabric, the, the burden of racial suspicions um, has been disproportionately borne by black people as well. Um, and there's reasons for that. There's reasons of statistical discrimination that, that you've brought up. There's not, it's not all, as you say, if you're a, a white guy living in Queens, if you're living in New York where a crazy percentage of the violent crime is perpetrated by black offenders, you can't simply dismiss a, a psychological bias, a, a different reaction when you see a black guy than a white guy as mere racism, right? That's, that's dishonest. At the same time, what people are going to feel is that why I cannot live in a country where my children might hear on the radio or on the news that black people are on average less intelligent than whites. And, and it, it's just such a fundamental insult to the possibility of living in harmony with other people. And it's, again, I want to distinguish between how you frame these facts in your book and how they are received by a wider population as a result of the foibles of human nature. There's this whole literature that I know you're aware of and my, my listeners will be aware of of, you know, Kahneman and Tversky and all of the people that, that have been documenting for, for decades that humans are not perfectly rational and that we can actually, we can get into big trouble by assuming or, or demanding in some cases that people are perfectly rational. We have to make some concessions to human nature. And I'm arguing that this is one of those concessions we have to make. We have to make some concessions to unreason. I, I think this is a, a, a philosophical conversation. And I heard you actually on Andrew Sullivan, you know, briefly mention that you didn't think a, a secular society could survive and, in, in the long run. And I, I want to talk about that because it's an interesting claim. But it seems to me, based on that, you would admit that it can be possible for certain claims to be true but also extremely detrimental to the health of, of a society. And, and I'm arguing this has to be one of those claims. And where we have to agree to disagree is to recapitulate some things we've said already. For a long time, we had kind of a tacit agreement not to talk about these things, whether it was crime or whether it was IQ. And it worked pretty well. I think things were getting better. That's why I hark back to the first decade of the century, where, where lots of things were getting better. And they are now have gotten much, much worse. And my view, and here's where we differ, I think we are at close to a point of no return, that you take the core ideal that made this country distinctive, an ideal we have failed to live up to in many ways and many times, of, of believing that everybody has the same innate 
human dignity as a person, and that everybody must be approached as an individual. It's wrong to judge people as groups. If we discard that ideal, we are opening the door to the kinds of governments that have been the lot of humankind for the last 10,000 years, where the people who have the power arrange matters to favor people that are part of their group and punish people that aren't part of their group. The United States was the first country to say, no, we, we aren't going to behave that way. And we're about to throw it all away. And so I'm not going to persuade you. I hope you're wrong about me uh, and, and the effects of, of the book. But this book is really a prix de cour, if you want to think of it that way, of somebody who loves this country and thinks it's on the brink of disaster. If I'm wrong, it's my bad, and I apologize, but I assure you, I wrote this book because I felt I had to write this book. All right. Well, on that note, I think we should come to a conclusion. I want to thank you for being brave enough to come on this podcast. I know, I know what it is to be a person with controversial ideas. You've arrived at um, on the basis of evidence and, and your own convictions. And I maintain that I think this direction is, is not the solution to the pr- problems you correctly identify. And I really hope that both people who love you, people who hate you and, and everything in between can get some kind of value out of this conversation. And um, so once again, I just want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for having me on because I think the odds are, Coleman, that you will take a significant heat for giving me a platform. And uh, yeah, I, I admire that in you. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.